Welcome to Retail Level Up's Moment with Mickey. In today's episode, we have a guest, Jeff Morrill. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur and ethical business author. He founded, co-founded Planet Subaru and businesses in retail, telecommunications, real estate, and insurance. This year, he's releasing his book, ProfitWise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing. Using the secrets shared in his book, his company's generated over $100 million in annual revenue and won many awards for customer care, environmental stewardship, and team satisfaction. Jeff's achievements in building ethical and flourishing companies have been featured in USA Today, Automotive News, and Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm especially interested in having him share with us his key insights that the high road is the straightest path to the bottom line. So please welcome Jeff Morrill. Welcome. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, I'm so excited to hear your background um, and have you share your insights with our audience. But give us a brief recap of your career. Well, I find myself now, I'll skip ahead to the end. I'm, I'm uh, talking to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live. The businesses that my brother and I own are almost all in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Okay. And a couple of years ago, I, I had, um, we can talk more about this later, but I, I was pretty much fried and needed to, um, to make a change. So we ended up, my wife and I moved to Charlottesville, but it all started when I graduated from college and couldn't find a job like so many recent graduates. And uh, I employed a, a technique that has served me very well over my life, which was I just put my ego aside and started making phone calls and trying to figure it out. And I eventually ended up taking the job in the service department of a car dealership. And it ended up there just a, as a personal connection. I had worked for a politician in college and he happened to have a, a Volvo dealership and he didn't have any jobs in his political office, which is what I was more interested in, but he did have the, the car dealership job. And I always loved cars. So that's how I, I acquired the skills to later, it was about four years later, my brother and I moved to Boston to buy a bankrupt Subaru dealership. And that was the first of, of several businesses that we started. And, and that's how, how we did it. So beware that first job you take out of college. I, I warn young people because as you might still be doing it many years later. It, and it's so true, true in my case too. That's how I fell into retail. I, I didn't know what I was going to do out of college and took a job as a sales associate in the mall because that was the place to be. And, you know, 30 years later, still working with retail. Sure enough. Yeah. So tell, tell us about, you had mentioned that there was a near fatal accident that led you to write your book ProfitWise. What, what was that? So all those years I was working hard building a business under fluorescent lights. And I dreamed of, of the freedom that, that I expected would follow later in my life once I, I had a business that provided the cash flow that I didn't have to, to work six and seven days a week. And, and that dream did come to pass, although you should be careful what you wish for because uh, it was a Thursday afternoon uh, while everybody else, I'm, I'm only 49, so I don't know many other people that are, are retired. This was a couple of years ago, so I was 47 and, and it was the middle of the day. So I was out riding by myself because I don't, everybody I know works. So 
I was on a, an icy country road in the middle of nowhere. And I'd always assumed that if I, I wrecked a mountain bike, which I've done a lot of times, if you mountain bikers know it's, it's not when you're going to wreck. It's just, it's just what time today. It just happens a lot. You know, if you're, if you're riding and having fun, you're going to, you're going to fall off. I mean, generally they're not catastrophic incidents, but this day it was. And, um, I was thrown from the bike and, and I hit very hard. And, and when I hit, I was like, oh, this is going to ruin my ride. And is the pain hadn't, hadn't quite hit me. And then a few moments later, I was like, this is really going to ruin my day. And, and then I looked down at my leg and, and it was so terribly mangled that I was, I was realizing I'm all alone. It's like 25 degrees out here and I have my thin jacket on that, that I wear when I ride. Cause you're hot, you know, you're not, you don't want a lot of insulation. And it occurred to me if I didn't start making really good decisions that, that this was going to be my last day. And fortunately it's just one of those lucky things. My phone survived the crash and, and it happened to happen. This is a very rural area where I live in central Virginia. There are lots of areas where there's just simply no, no cell coverage because of all the mountains, but there's one bar was available to me and I was able to connect a crackling call with a 911 911 dispatcher, excuse me. And, and they got an ambulance to me and four EMTs, you know, scraped me off of that hill. So anyway, make a long story short, they got me to the hospital. I survived. Obviously I'm here. Right. And, and later that night I was thinking about if that had been, yeah, I was in the hospital with, with uh, no chance of sleeping, obviously, and had a lot of time to reflect on, on, on that moment. And I asked myself if, if this had been my last day, would this have been enough? Hmm. And, and my answer was no, there was something conspicuously missing. And that is that I, I hadn't completed my ambition to give back as much as had been given to me. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, is so many people had uh, invested in me over the years. I think about the teachers that educated me who could have earned a lot more money in other professions, but, but um, you know, chose, chose, schooling as their career because they wanted to help people like me grow and 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 develop into their full potential. And I thought about the the generations before me that had sacrificed, you know, they had um you know really left school early to support their families and mm-hmm. and um on and on and on. So many people that had helped me along the way. And I realized that I'd enjoyed the benefits of all these investments that had been made in me. And I've certainly helped people along the way, but but not enough. So it was an inflection point for me to think about how I could start really, really giving back. And, and um, I was completely incapacitated on the couch for months. And there were a lot of lessons that I had learned in business. And I thought, let's, let's start here. Let's share those and try to, try to um, help other people avoid many of the mistakes that held me back and, and slowed my development as a person and, and as a, as a businessman. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you, you talked about the, the lessons that you learned and that you wanted to share. Did you do a lot of personal growth and development early on in your career as you were starting out? One of the qualities I admire in people is that of introspection. Hmm. And, and you can def- define that notion in many ways. For me, it's just thinking about your own behavior. What motivates it? What are the impacts on other people? 
Is it working? These are the questions that I like to ask. So I aspire to, to introspection and, and there's certainly been, uh, as, as time has gone on, I think I've become better at it. But I think to the extent that you can, you can devote energy to this practice that I'm describing here, I think you're going to more quickly discover your potential in it. And you're also going to, to be a much gentler person to all those people around you that depend on you. Cause I, you know, I think back, there were some times where I lost my cool as a supervisor and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, th- those were not, those were not good incidents. And, and fortunately there were very few because it, it happened to me very few times. And, and after each time I, I thought about what I had done and what the impact was of the things I had said on the person that I was interacting with. And, and I, I didn't want to repeat that mistake. And, and so I can't say that I, I'm, I've been perfect on that, but I've, I think um, were you to interview everybody that works with me as a colleague today, they've, I think they would, they would say that they can, they can tell that I've invested a lot of effort in keeping my cool when things aren't going exactly the way I'd like them to go. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's such a, a good quality in a great leader to be able to maintain your cool and to not, um, let the situation uh, impact you so much that you you um, react rather than respond. Yes. So we conducted a poll recently for our Retail Level Up uh, private Facebook group members and was asking them what their top concern was heading into this new year. And their number one concern was attracting and retaining the best people. And I know you have some really helpful tips on how that you can implement a repeatable, straightforward hiring process for attracting and retaining the best talent. And I know that our, our audience would love to hear your inside tips on that. You know, we're, we've learned the hard way how to do this when we, when we first opened, I was in my twenties when we, when we bought that Subaru dealership and had to hire a lot of people right away. And I hadn't had a lot of experience before that doing it. So practice does make perfect. We made a lot of mistakes. And as we discovered the errors, then we tried to find ways to correct those errors. So I'll give you an example. The, the very first person that I offered a job to, uh, you know, we, we did a single interview and I relied entirely on my own intuition and offered him a job right there on the spot. We set up a, a start day for two weeks after he had an opportunity to notify his employer. And that person never showed up. And, and it, that day I was, so, I was so frustrated and I was hurt because hiring is a very personal kind of experience. You know, you, 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 there is some vulnerability to that taking a risk on, on bringing someone on your team. Yeah. And that was, that was the start of many mistakes that I made. And, and so our process described in the book, and I can describe a few of the, the things here that um, we, it was developed over time, just trying to figure out how to way to correct the mistakes that we had made. So one of the, one of the errors that we were making and we discovered this was that we were hiring people that wouldn't stay. So they were, you know, they might stay a week or, or a month, three months, and then they quit. And what they would tell us is this isn't what I thought it was. 
So we actually added what we call a shadow day to our three-part interview process. That's the third day of our interview. And after they've passed the first two interview days, they spend pretty much a whole day with us. So in the case of like an automotive salesperson, they'll we'll invite them to spend a Saturday with us, you know, um, hanging out in the middle of the showroom, not looking too weird, but listening into the conversations that, that are existing team members are having with customers so they can get an idea of the kinds of uh, the kind of approach we have, which is very unusual in the car business. It's a no pressure kind of uh, undealership approach is what we call it. And so they get to chance, they get the chance to see what we say and they get a chance to see how the customers interact. And, and that's really good because sometimes customers, you know, as, as friendly and low pressure as we can be, there's still a culture out there that, that uh, leads some customers to behave uh, like tough guys, <clears throat> excuse me. And so we, we need to, to make sure that anyone that that's applying for that job understands they're going to run into some grumpy people from time to time. And when they get to see that it's a real eye opener. And, and sometimes we have people go all the way through our interview process and, and, um, and pull themselves out of contention on that, on that shadow day because mm-hmm. they got a chance to see it. Yeah, but what what a great um, way to introduce the real culture and the reality of what the job's going to be like is having that shadow day. Yeah, yeah. Another thing we do is we we realized uh, early on that we were spending too much time during the interview talking about things that didn't have good signal value. Um, and what I mean by signal value is that you know we were learning about uh, applicants' hobbies and pets. And kind of small talk conversation things that that really do not indicate whether a person is going to be able to to satisfy the requirements of the position. So again, in the case of an automotive salesperson, we we spend a little bit of time and, and not a lot, but a little bit of time identifying the qualities that we thought were present in our most successful salespeople. Mm-hmm. And and then we spend a little time figuring out what were the questions that would reveal those qualities. So I'll give you an example. One of the things we know is really important to the success of our salespeople's conscientiousness. And, and we can, all of us have had that, that example of something where, where as a buyer, we are totally prepared to, to um, give the business money. And the salesperson almost got in the way of us doing business with them because they were unable to provide us with the information we needed to proceed with the purchase, or they couldn't return a phone call or just the most basic kind of organizational thing. So, so we have questions that, that address that. And um, those scripts are actually on my website, jeffmoral.com. So if you can't afford the book, but you still want the benefit of some of the hard, hard won lessons, you can, you can visit the website and, and, and learn some of those there. But, but one of the questions we ask uh, to get at conscientiousness, for example, is how do you keep track of your commitments, mm. specifically appointments? And we let, um, we let people, usually people will either pull out a notebook if they're kind of old school and like the pen and paper, or they'll take out their phone. And we actually ask people to show us, you know, show, well, show me what's, what you have going on. And, and when we see that someone hasn't written anything down, you know, their, their calendar is basically empty, then that's a, an indication. It's not necessarily disqualifying, but certainly an indication that, that this isn't a person who, who has developed the skills to organize their time well. And obviously we need, we need in our company, if we're going to do a, do a good job as a salesperson, you need to have that, that skill. Yes. And, 
So that's, that's one of the, another technique that we use for hiring. That's wonderful. Uh, through my career, I've noticed that a lot of hiring managers, HR departments, companies don't spend the time to identify what are the qualities of that ideal employee and then craft interview questions that will reveal those qualities in the candidate. It's so mm-hmm. interesting how it's a, it's a really, you know, kind of simple concept and yet so few companies and hiring managers take the time to do it. And if you, it, it's a good point. And if you don't do that, well, I'll just move upstream a little bit. Then it's very difficult to craft that recruiting ad that identifies the kind of people that you want. Because generally positions, you know, not every position is looking for the same qualities. So if you haven't figured out the kind of person that you're looking for, then you're going to write an ad that's going to be much less effective. And you might make the mistake I see so many companies make, which is to um, like require way too much experience or something. Mm-hmm. And the the reason um, we've found, we've been very successful in our industry hiring people that have not previously done it. Like in the case of salespeople, we actually intentionally look for people who have not worked at other dealerships because we don't want to import those high pressure tactics mm-hmm. that uh, they may have learned there. So we like to start, you know, with smart, personable, conscientious, intelligent, organized people and train them our way. Mm-hmm. So it would be a mistake for us to require a lot of experience. And I think it would give us, you know, if we ran a recruiting ad requiring that, it would bring us the wrong kind of candidate. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially true in the retail industry that you want to hire for attitude and mm-hmm. much less for the skill because the skills you can train, but hiring for attitude, it's really difficult to change someone's perspective and, and way of doing things and, and just that energy that they exude that's a whole lot harder to change, but skill you can train. Yeah, anybody that's married or in a long-term relationship knows that it's, it's very difficult to modify anyone's behavior. <laughs> you know, yes. um, it's in, in particularly to change their fundamental personality characteristics. So mm-hmm. we look for the same thing. We, we, we know we can impart skills, but, but in terms of that, the quality of their, of, you know, their, their person, their, their personal, um, their ability to interact in a personable way with other people, for instance, in the case of salespeople. You know, if you're if you're just not a naturally authentic, charming person, then then there's really nothing we can do for you in a sales context. You know, we, we can't we can show you our our way of of asking questions and and um, but but if if people don't if you're just not likable, then, yeah. then that's that's um, we can't do anything with you. Right. So Jeff, you have a philosophy that business should be a win-win that makes life better for everyone involved. Tell us more about that. Well, the the book that I wrote, Profit-Wise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing, is all about trying to find that win-win. I'll give you a couple of competing examples. You know, some businesses, and it's it's great, they they write checks to, to local organizations to support the community. And, and we do our share of that. The problem is you can only do so much of that because for every dollar that you're, you're sending out of your company, that, that limits the profitability of your company. You know, there's only, there's, it's definitely a win for the, the charity, 
and a win for the community, but it doesn't bring a lot of revenue into your company unless you can find a way to really celebrate it and attract a lot of attention for it. Mm-hmm. So what we do our share of that, and I think it's admirable, we can only do so much. But there are other things we can do, like in terms of our recruiting. I'll give you an example of something I'm very proud of. At the at our, we have several dealerships, uh, not several. We have uh, five brands uh, represented, and at the Subaru dealership, five of our technicians are women, which doesn't sound like a lot, but believe it or not, of the 16,000 franchised dealerships of all brands and sizes in the country, that, that places us number one in terms of the number of female technicians we have. And I think it's, it's a way for us to communicate just how effective uh, we can be in terms of creating opportunities within a community. So we're going to, we need good people. And there are people, uh, like in the case of the five women who, who are on our team, they want the benefits of the opportunities available to them in a car dealership and the good income and the career path and the, the great benefits and the, the reasonable work hours. I mean, there, there's a lot of, in a, in a highly functioning dealership, and there's a lot to be said for, for that being a good job. So they're really, really good jobs. They pay well. There's um, a lot of chance, a lot of chances to grow, grow skills and, and earn more as, as you um, get, get more technically knowledgeable. So that's a way that it doesn't cost us anything. And yet we've given opportunities to people who otherwise have been, you know, wouldn't have had them have been traditionally very poorly represented in our industry. Only about 1% of automotive technicians are women. Wow. Wow. So developing an exceptional company culture is a challenge. And I have seen it in so many companies where business is good. um, There's transparency, honesty, great collaboration, inter-cross-departmental communication. And then when sales get tough, um, the the culture and, and the level of leadership seems to take a dip too. And they have difficulty maintaining that culture when times are tough. So what can you share about how you and your brother have developed this company culture that is great and sustains even when sales might be off a little bit? Yeah, you mentioned, you know, several things there that play into culture. And I I think about culture as like a wall with a thousand bricks in it. And, you know, probably no company has, has, you know, a perfectly solid wall and some companies, the, the wall is so porous. There are so few bricks in their culture that's almost falling down. But I, I think that there are so many, in, you know, individual things that a company needs to do to create it. There's simply no, you know, there's no simple rule, but I think it's a lot of little things. And I'll give you an example. I mentioned before that shadow day that we we do with our applicants. Well, in, in the case of let's say an automotive salesperson that wants to apply to to our team, on that day that they come, we invite all of the other salespeople, um, the receptionist, and anyone who wants to meet that applicant. We give them the opportunity to do that, 
And then after the candidate leaves, we invite the feedback from everybody that met that person. And what that allows the everybody on the team has had an opportunity to have influence over the kind of people that end up joining the team. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a benefit to the dealership because sometimes, you know, all those eyes on a candidate, sometimes it'll, it'll be just one person that'll, that'll catch something that the rest of us missed. And we'll, we'll um, usually we have three interviews, but it will, it will prompt us to do a fourth interview. But, but in terms of the culture, it's a way to, to communicate in a very authentic way to the people that are already on our team that we value their judgment and that we care about the quality of the team members that are joining them. Mm-hmm. And, and what a much warmer environment that uh, candidate finds when he or she is finally on the team, gets on that first day. And everybody are, has already met that person and knows that person and, and quickly uh, much more quickly becomes part of the family than just having the person show up. Here's your new colleague. Yeah. So I think there, there are so many things like that that a company does. And perhaps you, I mean, I hate, it just sounds so trite to say it's the golden rule, but, you know, I think managers and, and um, supervisors, owners, co-founders, founders, whatever, they, they forget how recently it was that they were, they were in the position of their, their team members, you know, trying to implement policies that were delivered to them without enough information or instructions, or, or they weren't given the tools or the equipment they needed to do it well, or they weren't given a reasonable amount of time or the training or, there's so many things like that that, inter- that just frustrate people and, and um, pull bricks out of that culture wall that, that I was describing earlier. I think that, um, that it, it behooves all, all of your listeners who are in a supervisory capacity to just think about the impacts of, of the decisions they make on the, on the people that depend on them to make good decisions. And if you start there, I think that you can, you can slowly turn even an, an unhealthy culture into a healthy one. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to switch gears here just a little bit and talk about more of the operational side of the business. Uh, you mentioned uh, there's some common mistakes that businesses make with their websites. Share us what that is. We really depend on our website because we have a very unusual story to tell on the retail side. We have other businesses, but the the Subaru dealership in particular is probably the, the best known in the metropolitan Boston area anyway. And we use the website as, as the hub of the wheel. All of our marketing efforts steer uh, prospective customers to that website. And, you know, we don't run, for instance, we don't run television ads on cable or we don't run radio ads. What we do, we, we try all the efforts we do, we're trying to, trying to push, push people to visit our website because we have a story to tell and it's, a, it's, it's unexpected because we're running a very different kind of dealership, as I alluded to earlier. And we need a little time and, and a creative opportunity to share that story. And of course, we have video and images and there's all sorts of ways we can do that. And, and I think in the process of doing that, what we realized is, is how important it is to make sure our website gives people a reason to do business with us instead of someone else. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. And I can't tell you how, how many websites I visit when I need, because, you know, we need a lot of services both at home and, and through the business. If I need a plumber or we need a, a company that'll do the commercial cleaning for us or, and you go to their website and their phone number's there and they tell you how great they are. You know, we're, we're number one in service or we're the lowest price, whatever, but there's really no compelling story about why you should do business with them. Hmm. And I think something like the the Dollar Shave Club comes to mind, which is a national business, you know, an e-commerce business and not the kind of business that we're in, which is more local. But but they just had a great story. And and I think that they were able to connect with people about that. And it was authentic. And if you're in business and you're whatever you're selling, uh, whatever kind of services, if 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 I can go to your website and not figure out why I should do business with you, then then you need you need to start looking at how you could tune that up and, and do a better job of sharing what makes your business special and what you can do uniquely. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, that's an important mistake. I see that the business is making another mistake is that, is that they might know what makes them special, but they don't tell the story very well. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. We, one of the things that's really cool, we have dogs in our showroom. We call them our, our blue collar workers, if you will. They're our, our greeter dogs and, and they are all over our website. I mean, if you, if you look at product videos, you'll see them jumping out of, out of the backs of cars. If you go to our homepage, you'll see them on the sequence, you know, interacting with customers or hopping up on laps or that kind of thing. And, and, so if you've got a good story and, and your business really does have a, have a compelling uh, differentiator, then make sure you find a creative way to share it. Mm-hmm. So that'd be a couple of things. Yeah, those are great tips. Thank you. So talk to us about business plans and why they're so important, especially when you know, you're, you're just starting out your business, you write one. And then after you start your business, you hardly ever go back and look at it. So why are they so important? Yeah, I'm reminded um, of our business plan that we did when we bought the Subaru dealership, our first business, and and we never looked at it again after after we did it. And people say, well, why, Jeff, are you so enthusiastic about business plans? And the reason why is, is that if you can't make it make if, excuse me if you can't make a business work on paper, you'll never be able to make it work in reality. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people jump into business. They'll they'll spend a lot of money and a lot of time, expose themselves to a lot of risk, without doing that. It, it's kind of tedious and it's not much fun to sit down and and work spreadsheets and make phone calls to test the assumptions like. Like if you don't know how much insurance is going to cost, let's say you want to open up a pizza restaurant. Well, how much does it cost to insure? You know, you're going to need insurance. And how much does that cost? I have no idea. And most people starting a pizza shop don't have any idea. Well, you need to make a phone call and ask ask an insurance broker how much, you know, this is kind of what I'm thinking for a business. Can you give me a ballpark? So you have a number to, to plug in. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of doing that is that after you plug in all those numbers, you can see how many pizzas you have to sell in a month. And if you have to sell a million pizzas in a month to break even, then maybe that's not a very good business equation in, in a business that's going to work for you. Maybe you should think about something else or try to try to figure out, you know, um, 
a different strategy than than the one you've you've tried to to implement at least on the business plan. Mm-hmm. I think it it it's a good idea too for even if you're already established as a business, you know, we're always doing projects, new new initiatives, maybe buying new businesses, and the same wisdom applies. That that um, I'm trying to think of an example, like like if a um, let's say a coffee shop wanted to make a decision to add food to their offerings, then it it's you're basically starting new business there, and the same wisdom applies. You know, you want to you want to make sure that that the costs associated with the people needed to prepare the food and the, the food costs and the um, disposable silverware that you're going to need, all those expenses to make sure that you're, you think you're going to be able to sell enough sandwiches and, and other kinds of, of food to actually make it make sense. Okay. So what tips do you have for business owners to have more fun and how to avoid burnout? Yeah, I I can speak with with some authority on this topic just because I flamed out so uh, so badly myself. I mean, I I burnt myself out about as, as so bad that I had basically had to flee flee the businesses that caused the burnout. And I have a much healthier relationship with work now. It was it was an important process of of coming to terms with that burnout. But anyway, long story short, I think one of the very important things that I recommend is that if you if you're in any business long enough, you have a high likelihood of burning out. It's just going to happen. So one of the things you want to be working on right now is grooming your successor. Mm-hmm. And that successor can take, you know, might appear in many different forms. And in our case, uh, we hired a salesperson. His name was Dale in 2002. And and soon after we hired him, we saw that he's just a very special guy and that, you know, he shared our values as people and he was intelligent and gentle with people. And he just had the qualities that, that were, were going to make him a really good leader but they needed to be developed because he was right out of college. So over the years, we invited him to participate in meetings, you know, if the, and um, to meet key people, you know, key vendors that, that we buy our products from, the manufacturers that, that send us vehicles. We made sure that he was included in, in those meetings. And so over time, he just became very, very comfortable and knowledgeable about the kinds of decisions that need to be made day to day. So by the time that I was, I was done, it was actually a very easy transition Mm -hmm. to hand the reins, the operational day-to-day reins to him. Mm -hmm. And thank heavens, I had the foresight to do that because it, so many businesses that are built almost entirely around the founder as the operating manager of the business, if that person becomes sick or, or in my case, burns out and there's no one to step in, then, then that can often force the sale of the business, or it can uh, plunge the plunge the business into chaos. So I think that's that's a really important tip. Uh, on an operational level, I think one of the things I learned too late was I learned to spend a little bit of time before going into work every day in my own office at home, interruption free, mm. so I could get the most important, hardest things done. 
I think for, for too many years, I went in and tried to get important strategic things done in the midst of all the operational day-to-day chaos yeah. of a seven-day-a-week business. And, and it was too late that I realized, wow, I should have been spending the first 20 minutes or half an hour. Some, some days, it might be two hours mm-hmm. at home before going in mm-hmm. so that, that if nothing else gets done that day, that important strategic stuff did get done. Yes. Oh, that's a good tip. You had also uh, mentioned some something about a simple intention setting process to help you close the gap between where we currently are and where we want to get to. What is that process? So many people in life, and I'm I'm one of them. I guess it's it's everybody. We have dreams, aspirations, desires that are not currently met and yet they're important to us. I met a, uh, a young lady and she wanted to be a writer and I asked her if she'd be willing to send me some of the writing that she had done so I could look at it. Cause I, I'm a writer too. And I, I enjoy, I enjoy learning from other people in their writing. And, and she said she hadn't actually done any writing yet. She just wanted to be a writer and that's fine. I mean, it, 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 she was young, so I'll, I'll give her a pass on that. But the, the point of the intention setting process that I describe in the book, and it's, it's pretty basic. It's, it's straightforward. It's basically taking an inventory of where you are today and, and the qualities that you lack that you would like, or maybe there it's a, it's a level of, of financial security that you'd like, or it's a, a fitness level, or it's a, a quality of the relationship that you have with your spouse or, or a family member or a friend. You know, to identify that gap by, by spending some time thinking about what you feel like you're missing. And then once you identify that gap, you just figure out the strategy of, of the few steps that are going to move you closer to closing the gap. So in the case of the, the young woman who who wasn't yet a writer, I mean, the obvious thing for her would be to, to spend a little time thinking about what she would like to write and then, and then just starting, you know, I mean, you know, opening up a laptop or, or getting a notepad and, and getting at it. And a lot of, I meet probably the majority of people that I meet have, have a lot of unfulfilled wishes in their, their lives. And yet they're doing nothing to fulfill those wishes. And there's a way to fulfill them. And, and that's the process I describe. And, and that sort of captures the, the 30,000 foot essence of it, I think. There was a little social experiment that was done in New York City uh, by Bryant Park. And they put a giant blackboard and some chalk. And at the top, they wrote, I regret. And then people had the opportunity to just come in and fill out whatever statement and 99% of the statements were things that people had regretted not having done. Missed opportunities. Yeah. 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 It's funny because even that, that terrible accident, I mean, maybe if I had died, I'd, I'd be thinking about it differently from heaven, but I don't regret going riding that day. I mean, it was awful. I mean, it was, I've never been so scared uh, or alone in my life and and the rehab was brutal. It's now two years later and I still can't walk right. But I wouldn't, it, I'm really not, I, I don't really regret it. it it's, um, 
the regret I think I would have had as an old man is looking back and saying that I hadn't done, you know, the adventure sports that I'd wanted to do. And I've given up the adventure sports, but I've done some really cool stuff up, up until the point where I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And I'm glad I did. And I can't do it anymore, but I got 47 good years of it. So that's there fine. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any um, final tips on what your favorite do's and don'ts are for anyone in the business world that we haven't already touched on? One I like is very common among um, business owners, I find. Um also very common against uh, common um, among the the older uh, older males and i'm i'm rapid if i'm not already there i'm i'm definitely getting there is is just not shutting up like in, in a business context it's so important to listen whether you're selling whether you're supervising whether you're trying to persuade someone to see something your way. I mean, there's so many instances in your personal life, you know, if it, it's, it's, you've got to stop talking long enough to create that vacuum that draws out the other person. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the older that I, the older I get, the more value I see in asking questions. So, so general, this very weird um, format for me, that we have right now because it's someone asking me questions mm-hmm. and, and I certainly like to, I like it, but what I find is I, I don't learn where the only time I'm learning are those brief moments where you're reflecting mm-hmm. or sharing something. And, and so in a non zoom format, non podcast format, I like to ask the questions. So whatever talking I'm doing is not uh, squelching the uh, opportunity for the other person to share what they know and to inform my perspective on things. And I, I don't know what it is, but, but it's just very hard. I think there must be dopamine released when we talk or something because it's, it's just a very rare skill. And I think that if you can develop, the earlier you develop it and the better you develop it, the, the richer your your personal life is going to be and the more successful you'll be professionally. Absolutely. There's a book that I refer to frequently by John Maxwell, great leaders ask great questions. Mm. And it, it really hits that point very well. And I, I see it a lot in entrepreneurs, uh, especially, you know, the mom and pop shop owners or, or whatever business that they're in they're, They are in their business because they're really good at what they do and they get to that that level of success and they often forget that they don't know it all and and they need to hear from their team and hear from those people who are on the front lines working for them to learn what is really happening in their business and with their customer and if we're talking all the time we aren't having the opportunity to learn and grow and respond to the needs of the business or our people or our customers. Yeah. I I think too, you know, if you own your own business there, nearly everybody that you're going to interact with in a professional environment has some financial reason to laugh at your dumb jokes and keep you right on talking. Hmm. And so I think sometimes the feedback that you get as a, as a business owner 
or an influential person in your company is, is deceiving because people are giving you the indication that they want you to keep going, Hmm. but they're, they're not genuinely interested in what you have to say. They would probably prefer that you learn more about what their needs are so that, that the company can benefit from, from your decisions being better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So setting the right environment to allow that to happen is important. Yeah. Another brick in the wall of the culture. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So if our audience would like to get your book, how would they do that? So they can, uh, they, everything that they can, uh, you know, they can reach me or, or get a link to, to get the book at jeffmorrill.com. And my last name is M O R R I L L. So I have a lot of resources there. I, I love to, to hear from, from readers and listeners. So you can email me directly from there. There are also those resources that I mentioned earlier, like the scripts for interviews. We, we have those available and uh, there are lots of worksheets. Many of the tools that are on there are the exact same. I mean, like literally PDF versions of the same, same documents that we use very successfully in our businesses every day. So, and those are all free if you don't have the, if you can't afford the book, there's even a few free chapters to the book that wouldn't, the publisher couldn't fit them in on starting a business. So if you want to just get a flavor for the kind of writing that I do uh, without, um, without making a purchase, you can do that too. Awesome. Wonderful value that you're offering there. Thank you. All right. So it's jeffmoral.com. That's right. And they'll be able to find a link to purchase the book, all those resources you just talked about. And then there's probably a link to your podcast on there. I don't have a podcast. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I I don't know if I have the, uh, it's it's a totally different skill set that I've I've got my hands full, but it looks really cool. I mean, being on the other end of it. Yes. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today as our guest. And I look forward to diving into more of the tips that you have so generously placed on your website for our audience to um, benefit from and help them in their business and in their careers. So thank you. All right. Great. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, Mickey. Appreciate it. Take care.